Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a delight to see you here on Palm Sunday. Before we get started, you heard Steve mention it in the prayer, uh, but uh, today is a day we can recognize someone who has served our church faithfully for 30 years. Uh, David Bading has been part of our music ministry for 30 years, and he has a day job. Uh, and yet he has used his gifts and uh, his talents to serve us selflessly. Now, there's going to be a reception after uh, the, the next service, so around noon or 12.30 or so. Join us in the fellowship hall if you'd like some food. There's lots of food in the building today after church. But uh, if you'd like to come and express your gratitude that way, do that, or simply uh, do it any way you'd like to do it. But uh, I would like to personally express Where's David? I uh, know he's hating this. Every moment of this, he's hating this. Uh, but I'd like to express on behalf of the church how much we appreciate everything you've done to help us on Sunday, whether we realized it or not, because you're kind of in a box over there, um, but to help us worship the Lord and to do it with a gracious and selfless spirit. So thank you on behalf of the church. Uh, we're glad you can be with your kids in Grand Rapids. Go blue. And, um, and I would love for us as a church just to express our appreciation to David for serving us so well. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as you open your word together that we come to this place at this time to hear from you. We believe, Holy Spirit, that you speak to us through the very words of God. So we pray that you would do that even today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Um, if you're not familiar with Palm Sunday, you probably figured out now why we arm children with, uh, with leaves beginning of the service, and uh, sang together all glory, laud, and honor, and we've been talking really in our songs and our prayers about the fact that Jesus is our King. This is the beginning of Holy Week, and this is really the beginning of us following Jesus in, his, in the last week of his life to the cross, and then next Sunday, Easter Sunday, hallelujah, we'll be back and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but today marks really those first steps toward the cross. And in some ways, we're like recreating that moment as much as we can. That moment that we read about a moment ago in John chapter 12, when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, there is a mob scene there. Um, there is a large crowd, is what John says. And they are enthusiastic about Jesus. And John actually tells us why they're so enthusiastic. They're enthusiastic partly because the story about Lazarus has gone viral as you might expect. You know, so last week, uh, Terrence preached on that passage in John when Jesus raises his friend, friend Lazarus from the dead, and news about that has spread. People have heard that this has happened, and so you can imagine that expectations for Jesus during Passover week, which is the week to be in Jerusalem, when the, when the city population expands from 50,000 to 500,000, that they have high expectations for Jesus and what he is coming to do. Uh, and, and so uh, as they celebrate, they're celebrating with palms. We had palms. They celebrate with songs. We had songs because they were expressing their belief as much as they understood what was happening, that Jesus is the king who deserves our wholehearted 
allegiance. Now, we know from the rest of the story, and if you follow along with us this week, that not everybody in the crowd on that Sunday felt the same way by Friday. Uh, but it's also true that, that, it, that in a room like this, and if you're watching online or watching from the Fellowship Hall, it's true of us as well, that we're sort of a mixed bag on Jesus as well. Uh, some of us are like 100% convinced that Jesus is the king and he's the one who deserves our wholehearted uh, allegiance. And, and then there are others of us who just aren't quite sure about that. We've got questions. And then there's probably a number of us as well who would say that that's true, but then there are aspects of our lives that suggest that maybe we don't really believe that in every single dark corner of our lives. There's like a disconnect between what we believe and, and the ways in which we're living. Uh, maybe for some of us, uh, our relationship to King Jesus is, is, is sort of like our relationship with uh, King Michael of Australia. Do you know King Michael of Australia? King Mike? No? That's okay. Uh, King Mike didn't know about King Mike either until uh, he's 63 years old uh, on a farm in Australia, and the BBC shows up on his front porch, and they inform him that based on some research they've done, he is quite possibly the long-lost descendant of King Edward IV of England, and therefore has a rightful claim to the throne. And as you can imagine, you know what changed after that moment? Nothing. Nothing changed in Australia. Nothing changed in England. Nothing really changed in Mike's life except a few friends who uh, at Christmas dinner every year would sing God Save the King when he walked into the room. That was it. And the rest of it was like, okay, that's a great story. Uh, it's inspirational at some level. It's humorous on some level, but it doesn't really change your life one bit. And for some of us, if, like, if we're honest, even those of us here today who, uh, who, who claim Jesus as king, if we're honest, there are parts of our lives that aren't really changed by that profession in any significant way. It's like, what's our relationship with what we profess? Well, you've come to the right place because John, in his gospel, as we've been saying last week and we'll keep saying for the next week, next week as well, John is very upfront about what he's doing in his gospel. Super upfront. He's not trying to pull a fast one on you. There's not a bait and switch. It's not like I'm here to give you some inspirational stories and then, aha, no, Jesus is the Messiah. He tells you over and over again in the gospel, the reason I'm writing this to you is to persuade you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to save sinners from their sins. Full stop. Like, he tells you that. So buckle up because he's here to convince us if we're not already convinced, or even if we are convinced, to convince us all over again that Jesus is the only king who is worthy of our wholehearted allegiance. And the way he does it here, now keep in mind, this is a cumulative argument. We're in chapter 12, so there are other chapters you should go back and read. But when we get to chapter 12, he's trying to convince us of this, persuade us of this in a few different ways. First of all, he's showing us something Jesus accepts. And at the same time, he's showing us something Jesus corrects. And then he helps us answer the question that I hope we would ask uh, as we're wrestling with these ideas. What does Jesus expect of me? So he accepts some things, he corrects some things, and then what does he expect of me? Uh, first of all, let's notice what Jesus accepts. Um, the fact that Jesus is getting the royal treatment on this particular day may not be abundantly obvious to us, because a lot of what's happening here is happening in the context of first century Judaism and the way that they would express certain ideas about certain people. So we have to unpack that a little bit. 
we have to unpack, first of all, the symbol of the palm branches. Now, palm branches weren't just convenient foliage. They were that. It's like, oh, let's just grab the nearest thing. Well, maybe they were the closest thing, but they actually held great symbolic value uh, to the Jewish people at the time. So, for example, archaeologists have found um, coins from that time uh, with, with palms on them that were commemorating great moments in Jewish history when they realized their independence. And we have to remember at this time, the Jewish people were living, at least in Jerusalem, they were living in an occupied city. There were armed Roman guards all over the place. They were dictating in many ways how they lived. And so there was a great sense even in this moment of of, uh, recalling the great independence movements of the past and even asking a question of Jesus, could this be another one of those moments? So for them to wave palm branches, I know it's really cute when our kids do it. It's really cute. And we're like, all right, who's going to who's gonna get hit and take it away from the kids right away? But I know it's sweet in this context. It, in, in that context, there was a real thrust of energy and urgency around this question of, is Jesus the one who God promised would one day set us free? And alongside of that, and in some ways adding even more urgency to this occasion is the fact they're not just waving palm branches and the other gospel writers tell us putting them on the ground like a a red carpet into Jerusalem. They're crying out together, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. That's verse 13. Now that's quoting from Psalm 118. We've used it a few times in our liturgy this morning. It's a psalm that was associated from its writing hundreds of years before with the Messiah. This would be a song that the Jewish people would sing every Passover, among others, as they made their way to Jerusalem. But it was also a song that was reminding the people that God had promised that there would come a king who would free them once and for all. So do you get what's happening here? Do you get what Jesus is accepting? He is is accepting the praise of people the royal treatment of these people who are saying, in essence, with these symbols and with these songs, this is the one we've been singing about every Passover. He is the one who will save us. In fact, the word Hosanna simply means save us now. He is a blessed one from God. He is the King of Israel. Now, maybe that shouldn't be surprising to us because John has already said news about Lazarus is in the air. So, I mean... If someone who just raised someone from the dead is walking by, you're going to have some pretty high expectations for what he's capable of. Of course. What should be slightly surprising to us, however, is the fact that Jesus doesn't stop them. Right? The the next thing we read is not Jesus saying, hey, can you guys tone it down a little bit? You're going to get me in trouble. People are going to get the wrong idea. Can you switch to a different psalm that isn't so overtly about the Messiah? Can you tone down the symbols and the songs? Instead, Jesus receives it. You might even say he encourages it. He knows exactly what's going on. Let me just give you an example. So if the sound text this morning decided to play a trick, and as I was coming up on the stage, they played Hail to the Chief. Okay, the first thing I would do when I would get up here, I'd be like, okay, good one, guys. We all get it because that song is played for one person. And sorry to disappoint you, I'm not that person. We're planning to be that person. So it'd be kind of a nervous moment for all of us, nervous laughter, ha, 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 we move on with our day. Um, Jesus is accepting 
songs and symbols that aren't just about someone who holds a earthly office, but someone who holds a heavenly office, someone who is the king of kings, Lord of lords, king of all creation. He's receiving all of that, and he doesn't turn it down. Now, this could mean a couple things. It could mean he's an imposter, like he wants people to think this, but he knows he's not that, that person. Or it could mean that he's delusional, like he thinks he is that person, but he's really not that person. Or it could mean he is that person. And by the way, the reason we're here and the reason that we're gathered together is because we believe he is that person. Honestly, if we didn't believe that, if we were just kind of here to feel good on Palm Sunday and kind of ramp up for Easter where we feel good again and go on with our lives, like if we didn't believe that Jesus is the true king and the only king who is worthy of our wholehearted, whole-lived allegiance, let me just say, we are basically wasting our time if we don't really believe that. Like there are other things you could be doing. It's Sunday at the Masters, ladies and gentlemen. Tiger made the cut, right? You know, and... Uh, um, do you even know what laud means? I had to look it up, right? We're here, we're singing songs. We don't know what, we only are here because we believe that when Jesus accepts the royal treatment, he is doing it because he is the king of all creation, of all people, in all times, in all places, forever. So the question you need to be wrestling with is, do you believe that? Now, before you fully answer that question, we need to address the second issue of what Jesus corrects, because there is some baggage, baggage associated with these symbols and songs, if you haven't figured it out already. And the baggage is that the Jews of the time, understandably so, were looking for the king, the Messiah, to do a specific thing. Uh, they were looking for someone who would come who would be a great military political leader, someone who would come to get the Romans out. So like the model for them, the template for them of what the Messiah would be was King David. And King David was a warrior, he was a soldier, he was strong, he was mighty, uh, he, um, he was a leader, he, was, he also was imperfect as we know from the Bible, but at the end of the day, he was the one they were looking for, the greater son of David. And so it's fully understandable they would expect that when the Messiah arrived in Jerusalem on Passover, it was game time. Like it wasn't just time for heart change, it was time for regime change. So all of those expectations are getting put on Jesus as well. And notice what Jesus does with those misguided expectations. He corrects them. So we're told, for example, in verse 14, that he found a young donkey and sat on it. That is to say, uh, and the other gospels fill this out as well, that Jesus very intentionally picked his mode of transport that day. Like, I, as far as I know, Jesus walked everywhere, so he could have just walked into Jerusalem. That was an option. Um, he, could have, um, he could have picked something a little more suitable for like a, 
a warrior or a king, like, I don't know, a stallion or a war horse or something a little more aggressive than a donkey, although I guess a donkey is aggressive in its own way, but what is being projected by a donkey is not the same thing that's being projected by a chariot or a war horse. So a, a donkey says humility, it says meekness, it says peace, and Jesus is signing up to be that kind of king. It's a corrective, you see. And not only that, he substitutes these songs of Hosanna, even though he accepts them, but he adds something else to the playlist, to the, to the soundtrack. Um, the fact that he picks a donkey means that he is aware of this song of Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet uh, who was writing, ministering five, six hundred years before. And John sings that song to us, the one that was likely in Jesus' head on that day in verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is a very different kind of song, right? This isn't a, a military chant. This isn't a triumphal song. This is a, this is a tender song, daughter of Zion. Uh, this is the kind of song you sing when your kid wakes up in the middle of the night terrified of a nightmare. This is the kind of song you sing when you're caring for somebody by their bedside. It is a song of love and presence and tenderness. I'm coming to you, I'm here, and I love you. You see what Jesus is doing? He is correcting misguided expectations of what he has come to do. Now, they had their set of problems, right? The people at that time had their own set of problems, and they were stationed all over uh, Jerusalem, their beloved city, and they were in Rome. Like, their most glaring problem, the one that was the top-line agenda item for them, for the Messiah, was that he would come and fix that problem. We have different problems, but we often have similar expectations. Like, I don't know what the top-line agenda item is for you, I don't know what the most glaring problem in your life would be. I know what some of them are. We prayed about them a moment ago when, when Steve was praying. Some of you have shared these things with me. I, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing that you would expect in a group this size. It's any number of different kind of relational struggles and work struggles and emotional struggles and spiritual, I mean, the list goes on, right? Like we have a long list of problems that we want Jesus to fix, not today, yesterday. And so we come into this place and you hear the pastor talking about Jesus is king and in the back of your mind, what you're thinking is if he's king, like what about my list? And, and, and so we can come into a place like this, and it looks good on the outside, but inside what we're really dealing with is pretty profound disappointment with God. That his agenda isn't our agenda. And that can pretty quickly move into cynicism. So what do we do with that? What is Jesus tutoring us in in this moment. Well, what he's showing us in this moment is not that he doesn't care about our long list of problems. He absolutely does. The Bible tells us that Jesus came as one of us so that he might sympathize with our weakness. He knows your weakness and your long list of problems probably better than you do. And it's also not that, that he looks at the world and doesn't care about those problems that we see going, around, going on around the world. We're promised in the Bible that Jesus is coming back one day in a very different way, and on that day, he will set all things right. But in this passage, Jesus is reminding us that he rode into Jerusalem to fix our greatest problem, 
which happens to be the problem that you and I can't fix ourselves. And that's the problem of our sin. That's a problem that's not out there. It's a problem that's in here. It's this radical breach between us and God that Jesus came to solve by not just riding into Jerusalem, but riding all the way or walking all the way to the cross. Jesus is not ignorant or callous toward all the ways in which we're hurting and broken. He promises to meet us in those places by his presence. He promises to bring healing in many of those places and one day to set all things right. But until that day, we are reminded here that Jesus came to do what we could not do for ourselves, to give us forgiveness, to justify us before God, and to give us joy even now in the midst of the brokenness and the sadness. The image that Jesus gives his disciples here in verse 24 is the image of a grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies. It remains alone, he says, but if it dies, if it dies, it bears much fruit. That is what Jesus came to do. So if this is true, if Jesus is this sort of king who has come to do battle for us on the cross, what does he expect of us? There's lots of things we could say about that, but I'll just mention a few from this passage. Uh, First of all, we see it happening in the aftermath or the epilogue of this incident. We're told right away that um, some Greeks came up to Jesus. Now, these would have been folks who um, were there for the Passover feast, but they weren't ethnic Jews. So they, they honored God in some way. They wanted to be there for the festivities, but they weren't ethnically Jewish. And so there was something of a separation between them and the rest of the celebration, at least in the temple, that is. But they want to meet Jesus. They want to have an audience with Jesus. And so they find Philip. Now, we don't know exactly why they picked Philip. Philip is a Greek name. So maybe they're like, well, this guy at least maybe will understand what we're saying. So they go and find Philip. And then we're told that Philip goes and finds Andrew. We're not sure why Philip did that. But maybe he's just doing like a quick check to make sure it's okay. And, And then Philip and Andrew together go to Jesus. We see something actually really important happening here that we've seen before. Um, at the beginning of John's gospel, when Andrew first meets Jesus, what's the first thing he does? Do you remember? He goes and finds his brother Peter and brings Peter to Jesus. When Philip first meets Jesus, what's the first thing he does? He goes and finds Nathaniel, and he brings Nathaniel to Jesus. These guys are bringers. These guys are introducers. These guys are, are folks who love to introduce people to Jesus. And it seems to me like this is a valuable lesson for us as well, for those of us who are following Jesus, that we recognize that part of the privilege we have as those who know Jesus is to introduce other people to Jesus. That is to say, um, you know, we don't make friends with people merely as if they're projects like we want to bring them to Jesus. No, we, we love our friends and we love Jesus, and so we want to introduce people to Jesus. It's actually always been this way. This pattern that we see here in John has been the pattern of the church forever. I mean, historians will tell you the, the main reason the church exploded in growth in the first 300 years was not because of great preaching or amazing worship services, as important as those are. The main reason that people became Christians was because ordinary Christians with ordinary jobs in ordinary places were talking about the good news of Jesus with other people. They treasured Jesus so much in their own heart that they wanted to share that treasure. So it's a good 
kind of challenge for us to think about what it would look like for us to understand this expectation in our own lives that we would be people who introduce people to Jesus. Uh, Next week's a great opportunity to do that. We're back for Easter Sunday. Church is open on Easter Sunday. That's good. Uh, And so you can invite people back on Easter Sunday. We have the Hope Explored class, which is really intended for people who are just asking questions about life. And if you have a friend who's asking questions about life, bring them to church and then go to that class the next week. You know, don't just send them down the hallway like it's down there and it's on the left, but actually go with them and sit with them. And you you may learn something too, you never know. Um, Or just making your home a place where people feel safe to ask questions, where people feel safe to be vulnerable, where you're not like shoving Jesus down their throat, but you're willing just to talk about what it's meant for you to be a follower of Jesus. This isn't radical stuff, by the way, y'all. This isn't like a new idea. It's right here. Even Jesus' disciples saw this pattern beginning to emerge in their own lives. That as people who love Jesus, he expects us to introduce other people to him. So what would that look like for you? And then secondly, the other expectation comes from these really challenging words that Jesus gives at the end. Um, That his other expectation is that we would follow him And he summarizes what it looks like to follow him in verse 25 when he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. I say those are strong words because that word hate kind of jumps out at us. Like, does Jesus really want me to hate myself? Well, no. We just finished saying a second ago, Jesus loves you. He loves you enough to go to the cross for you. He values you enough to go to the cross for you. He's not telling you to hate yourself. What he's saying is uh, our grip on our own needs being met right now and our own agenda being the only agenda that needs to happen in the room and our own interests being the only interests that are important. Our grip on our self-interest is so strong, we need some strong words to pry pry our hands and our fingers off of our self-interest such that we would say, uh, we desire as those who follow Jesus to do what he did for us every single moment of every single day. And that is to put our needs in the back seat and others' needs in the front seat. That's what we see Jesus doing here in this moment, riding into Jerusalem. Listen to this, the king of the universe, the God of all creation, the Lord of lords is actually putting your needs before his needs. And what Jesus is saying here is his expectation is that we would follow. What does it look like? Well, one of the words um, the, the Bible would use to describe this is repentance. So repentance really just means to turn. It means turn from the way you're walking to the way Jesus wants you to walk. And that first step in following Jesus, the Bible calls repentance because what it's basically saying is relinquish control of your life. Realize that you are not king of your life or queen of your life. Jesus is king of all creation. You owe your allegiance to him alone. Ask forgiveness for acting like you rule the universe. Ask him to forgive you of your sins to bring you into his family, which he will gladly do for any who come to him and then follow him. That's always the first step toward following Jesus. It's what the Bible calls repentance. And then for those of us who have repented of that way of life but often struggle to stay on that path, I want to give you a different word. It's the word love. Because 
Love is simply putting the needs of the person in front of you before your own. And the desires of the person in front of you before your own. And this too requires this like daily, moment by moment relinquishing of control to say, Lord, my life is not mine, it is yours. I belong to you, King Jesus. You have sovereignty over every corner of my life. There is not a boundary in my life that says this is where my sovereignty begins and this is where where yours ends and my begins. It is all his. And so we are all his. So that our relationship with King Jesus is one of daily communion of saying you rule. I want to follow you. Brothers and sisters, what a privilege even today on Palm Sunday, not just to, to, to celebrate who Jesus is and what he has done, but to follow him so that the world might see him. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us in this. Father, thank you that even in expecting these things from us, that our salvation and our embraced by the Father is not dependent on these things or how well we do these things, but instead dependent on you and what you've done for us on the cross. Lord, help us to follow you. Thank you for being such a good and gracious king to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to respond to our sermon. As we think about belief, we're going to specify what it is we believe with these words from the Nicene Creed. Uh, This is an ancient creed of the church that is uh, embraced by Christians all over the world throughout history. And so let me invite you to stand. And let's answer uh, together. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.